Ezekiel. Turn in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to take one of the blue Bibles in front of you, and you'll find a reading on page 834. This morning we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Every living soul belongs to me, the father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, he, but, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hands from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has not done any of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at usury and takes excessive interest. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share in the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he's committed... And keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right. He will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does... Will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of and because of the sins he has committed, 
he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offenses he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart. And a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We turn and sing again an invitation. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. An invitation to us all. And as we sing, our children will be dismissed for their kids' worship. Let's. Certainly, one of the great uh, challenges of being a parent uh, comes in teaching your children that we live in a moral universe in which our choices have consequences. We must somehow teach them that there is such a thing as right and wrong, good and bad. We are responsible for the choices that we make. And most of the biblical Proverbs are based on this connection. I think of Proverbs 6.27. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? That's the principle. Galatians 6.7 states it even more clearly. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps. What he sows. This is one of the most important practical lessons in life, isn't it? Our acts have consequences. And all parents need to communicate this in some way to their children. Now, unfortunately, parents sometimes undermine their instruction in this area and in one of two ways. On the one hand, they can be what they call helicopter parents. You know that always hovering right above their kids, ready to repel to their rescue whenever they see their kids uh, getting themselves into any kind of difficulty. They never allow their kids to experience any of the negative consequences of a bad decision. On the other hand, there can be a drill sergeant parents always barking orders about everything, never allowing their kids to make any choices at all. So somehow we need to help our children learn that growing up into adulthood means the privilege of making choices. And the responsibility for the consequences of those choices. But we all know that our children will resist this lesson. They will try to avoid taking responsibility. When caught eating cookies when they weren't supposed to, they will claim that because they were so hungry and and the cookies were right there on the table in full view, they just couldn't help it. Or when you come home and you find the lamp broken... Uh, Billy will be sure to blame his sister Susie for it, even if he started the fight. 
They try to wriggle out of responsibility for their actions. But personal responsibility is part of what it means to live in a moral universe. It's part of what it means to be human. Our choices have consequences. This is not an easy lesson to learn for, of course, we are all more like little children than we care to admit. You see this in the Bible from the very beginning. When God made Adam, put him in the garden, he gave him a choice. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And we know what Adam chose. But what does he say when the Lord confronted him about it? Oh, he says, the Lord, uh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit to eat. It was her fault and maybe even your fault. Certainly not my fault. No, I'm not to blame. He passed the buck. He pointed the finger. And we've been playing that game ever since. And that's just what we see happening in Israel in the time of the prophet Ezekiel. As you recall, Ezekiel is addressing the Jewish exiles who living as uh, captives. They had been deported some 800 miles from their homeland by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when he attacked Jerusalem in 597 B.C. In our previous study in chapter 16, we saw how the prophet had denounced the sin of Israel, going back to the beginning of their history. And maybe as a result of that, a rather cynical proverb was going around that evidently was quite popular. The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You ever eat sour grapes? Susan's parents used to have a little vineyard type thing in their backyard. And I remember the, the, the grapes were getting purple and you just want to taste them, see what they're like. Well, you know what that feels like. Or there's the paraphrase found in the message. The parents eat green apples. The children got a stomachache. You get the point. This is a roundabout way of saying what is stated plainly in Lamentations 5-7, which was written soon after this. Our fathers sinned and are no more. And we bear their punishment. In other words, we're not to blame for what's happened to us. We're getting a raw deal here and we don't like it. The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, there are actually two ways you can take this proverb and both may have been in the minds of those who endorsed it. And first, you could see it simply as a statement about the way things are. I mean, people suffer the consequences of things they didn't do. That happens all the time. People do reap what others have sown. Uh, a mother with AIDS can pass it on to her baby. And if I, as a father, go around throwing away my money and gambling and fast living, my family is going to suffer as a result. Children are inevitably affected by the sin and stupidity of their parents. And isn't this idea written into the Ten Commandments itself? I mean, Exodus 20, verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or worship any idol, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This is simply the effect of sin. We are not isolated individuals. We live in relationships of social solidarity. Our actions affect other people, especially in the close-knit life of a family. Now, if you take this idea far enough, you can develop a debilitating captivity to a kind of cosmic fatalism. In other words, there are all sorts of forces out there that impact my life, 
I am not in control of anything. I'm controlled by them. It's all in my genes. I mean, didn't they find a gene to explain why men commit adultery? Or it's the result of evolution. We're meant to be selfish so that we can survive. Or it's the influence of my environment. Of course, I'm materialistic. I'm just a modern American. That's just the way I am. I can't help it. And we feel powerless to change amidst all the forces that are at work around us. How can I be held responsible for my actions in such a world? But you can also take this proverb to be a simple case of blame shifting. It's not our fault we're suffering this way. We didn't do anything wrong. It was our parents. They were the ones who sinned. You see, we passed the buck. I like the way this is illustrated in a poem which relates not to sin but to poor education. The college professor says, such rawness in a pupil is a shame. The high school preparation is to blame. The high school teacher says, good heavens, what crudity, the boy's a fool. The fault, of course, is grammar school. The grade school teacher cries, from such stupidity may I be spared. They send them to me so unprepared. The kindergarten teacher says, such a lack of training, did I never see? What kind of woman must the mother be? But the mother laments, poor, helpless child, he's not to blame. His father's folks are just the same. And he ultimately says, since God is in control of all of this, it's really his fault that we're in this mess. And so we conclude it's not fair. It's just not fair. We don't deserve this treatment. And I find it interesting in our day, many people who are atheists blame the God they don't think exists for allowing or causing things that he shouldn't have if he did. You know how that goes. And we're not sinners. We're just victims. The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So how does Ezekiel respond to this way of thinking? Well, basically, he's saying that if we're using this proverb to avoid our own moral responsibility, we're just plain wrong. Verse three, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son, both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Now, don't be misled by the word soul. The Hebrew word here refers to the whole person viewed as a living being. It's not just some spiritual part of a person. Every human being belongs to God. Our lives are not just the result of blind, impersonal, fatalistic forces of cause and effect. We're not just determined by our genes or by our environment. We live in relationship to the personal God, Yahweh, to whom we belong. He is our rightful owner, whether we realize it or not. And we are answerable to him, whether we realize it or not. And this is true of all human beings in general, and it is true of every human being in particular. As the Father, so the Son. They both belong to me. They both belong to the Lord in the same way, under the same conditions, with the same moral demands upon them. The relationship of the Son to me, says the Lord, is not mechanistically connected to the Father's relationship to me. Each is accountable to his own personal choices and actions. The soul who sins. Is the one who will die. Now, again, it's true that the second commandment does speak of the effects of the sins of the parents on the children. 
But the law given to Israel to enforce in its human courts made it very clear they were not to inflict punishment on children for the crimes of their parents or vice versa. And this fundamental principle of individual responsibility before the law in the human court was being affirmed here in the divine court. We live in a moral universe and we are each morally accountable to God. You see, this is the fundamental principle that the prophet Ezekiel affirms in the face of this popular proverb. And, you know, this is perhaps the most important thing about us as human beings. We will be judged by our moral choices, not by our financial successes, not by our social standing, not by our political power, our professional fame. We will be judged by the simple everyday choices of right and wrong, good and bad that we face every day. We live in a moral universe and we are each morally accountable to God. Parents, this is a principle we need to teach to our children. But it's also a principle parents need to remember for themselves when our children began to make their own choices. They are ultimately responsible not to us, but to God. The Lord will render to each person according to what he has done. The person who sins is the one who will die. Now, trained as the good priest that he was, almost like a lawyer, Ezekiel then moves in verses 5 to 20 to illustrate this principle in a case study, inviting us to think of three generations. First, there's the father. Verse 5, suppose there's a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment and reflect on what Ezekiel means by the word righteous. Now, he's not talking about here as someone who is totally without sin before God. You see, often the word righteous in the Old Testament is a relational word. It can refer to one who is in right relationship with God, one who is living faithfully within the covenant God has established. And in that sense, it's close to what we call faith. It's covenant commitment. You might think of it as what constitutes a righteous husband. It's not one who ever does anything wrong, but it's one who lives in faith with his wife. As one commentator put it, righteous here is a term of allegiance and obligation, not of achievement. But according to Ezekiel, such faithfulness is not just something that exists in one's heart or one's head, just as in a marriage relationship, it necessarily comes out in one's life. It is faith that bears fruit and righteousness that pleases God encompasses all of life. And notice, too, that this righteousness is closely aligned with the word justice. Now, this is the description of a man who does what is just and right. You know, these two words occurred together nine times in Ezekiel, many more times elsewhere in the Bible. You see, justice involves the proper ordering of the world. 
Justice involves the peace, the well-being, the shalom of right relationships. And in the Bible, justice and righteousness necessarily go together. They are expressions of what it means to live in faithfulness to God's covenant. And so there are religious dimensions to righteousness and justice. The man who is faithful to the covenant, who does righteousness and justice, doesn't engage in the worship of idols. And he's concerned with ritual purity, hence the reference to avoiding the blood associated with a woman's menstrual cycle. Righteousness and justice also involve very personal and intimate sexual relationships. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. And righteousness and justice also include what we would call the very public, social, economic, and judicial activities of society. The one who does justice and righteousness doesn't rob anyone, nor does he take advantage of someone in great need by charging excessive interest, failing to return what he's taken from him as a pledge for loan. And this description includes what we usually associate with justice as well. That is procedural fairness. He judges fairly between man and man. But you see, it includes more than that. It's not just following the rules, not doing any harm to anybody. It includes positive good. Righteousness and justice includes giving food to the hungry, providing clothing for the naked. You see, a just society, a rightly ordered society includes generosity and mercy toward the poor, as well as sexual fidelity in marriage. I find it interesting that there's something here both for those on the political right and for those on the political left to think about in this whole area. Anyway, this is the picture of the righteous man Ezekiel puts before us. In the first part of this legal case study, this man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. That man will enjoy a relationship with God and all the blessings that go with it. But, verse 10, suppose that righteous man has a violent son, one who doesn't follow in his father's footsteps, but rebels against him and his God. He doesn't do any of the things that demonstrate faithfulness to the Lord. He is unrighteous and unjust. What will happen to him? Verse 13. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things. He will surely be put to death. And his blood will be on his own head. His father's righteousness cannot be inherited. Now to the third generation. The grandson sees the mess his father had made of things. And so he decides to model his life on that of his grandfather instead. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. Is his destiny determined by his parents? Will his teeth be on edge because his father ate sour grapes? No. Verse 17. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. You get the point. We're not just victims. We're not just fatalistically captive to forces beyond us and outside of us. Forces that somehow determine our destiny. No, you are a morally responsible agent. You will stand before God for what you have done. Verse 20, the righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. We are responsible to God for our choices. The person who sins is the one who will die. Now, at this point, 
if what Ezekiel said begins to sink in, his listeners may be tempted to despair. Maybe we aren't suffering for what our parents did. Maybe we have sinned and we are suffering for our own immoral actions. Well, if we're sinners and God is now judging us, then what's the point? Why try to please him? I mean, we can't change our situation now. Why not just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? What difference will it make? But it does make a difference, Ezekiel says. We're not locked into our past. So long as we have life and breath, real choice and real change is possible. There's hope. Verse 21, he says, but if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he's committed and keeps all the decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered Against him. Now, as we saw last week, if you're a sinner and you turn in faith to God, you may and indeed you must remember the shame of your offenses. But God won't remember them. He will wipe the slate clean. He will cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. He will forgive. He will receive you to himself. There's a great hope. You can change. And like the father in Jesus' story, the prodigal son, when you return to him, he is ready and willing to receive you. But of course, that change can go both ways. There's a warning here, too. Look at verse 26. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. You see, just as as sins can be wiped away, so righteousness cannot be stored up. As one writer put it, right standing before God is not capital that can be banked either by oneself or one's ancestors, allowing one to live on the accrued interest. The right standing before God is not about the quantity of our good deeds. It's really about the direction that we're facing. Are we turned toward the Lord in faith? And is that faith evidenced by our deeds? The question is not how much wickedness or goodness have you stored up, but what direction are you facing right now? You see, this passage reminds us that that people who appear to be true believers do turn away from the Lord. They do fall away from the faith. And no doctrine of eternal security denies that we must Remain faithful to Christ to the end. And just as Ezekiel was called to be a watchman for the house of Israel, so we're we're to be watchmen over our own souls. We're to be on guard. We must never become complacent. And the faith that we exercise when we first turn to Christ for our salvation must be the same faith we exercise today and tomorrow and the next day until the last day, whenever that may be. And so the Apostle Paul writes, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Back to Ezekiel 18, verse 25. You say, the way of the Lord is not just. Don't we hear that complaint today? 
Usually it simply means, Lord, I don't understand why you manage the world the way you do. Lord, I really don't like the situation I'm in. I don't like the cards I've been dealt. Lord, this is not the way I do it. If I ran things, you're not being fair. Well, that's what little Billy says when his brother gets the bigger piece of cake. Of course, I've never heard little Billy say that when he got the bigger piece of cake. That's another story. In fact, if we really thought about it, I don't think any of us would really want to give us what we actually deserve. You say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear, O Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? In fact, the very idea that the Lord must conform to our ways, our will, our wishes, in the way that He runs the world, that in itself is unjust. It's a misordering of the world. Putting ourselves in the place of God. No, He's God. I'm not. And people who make this complaint usually have no conception of the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the utter goodness of our God. And I have to tell you for myself, I confess, I don't know why things are the way they are often in the world. Bad things happen. And the Bible makes it clear there is not necessarily a one-to-one connection between a person's sin and his suffering in this life. Just look at Job or that man who was born blind in the Gospel of John. God has His purposes. And often they are far beyond us. But I tell you, I am confident that when all is said and done, and when all is finally known, all God's ways will be seen to be just and right and good Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And more than that, I know that He has graciously given me far more than I deserve. Do I complain that God is not just? No, I rejoice that God is merciful. Ezekiel draws to a close in verse 30. Therefore, he says, Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. You see, the ultimate problem with Israel is not just their outward acts, but their inward disposition. Their hearts are corrupt. They not only need forgiveness, they need restoration. They need a new heart, a new spirit within And you see, this new heart, this new spirit, that's something that the Lord had already promised that He Himself would give them back in chapter 11. And He makes the same promise later in chapter 36. And we'll talk about it more when we get there. But here, Ezekiel calls on his hearers to do what ultimately only God can do. Give us a new heart, a new spirit. Seek Him, Ezekiel says, and He will do it. You will get a new heart and a new spirit. And when He does give you what you seek, you will discover that it was His power drawing you to Himself all along. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you persist in your wicked ways? It doesn't make any sense. Why do you resist this truth about yourselves, this truth that you are morally responsible, the truth that you are accountable, and more than that, the truth that you are guilty? 
You have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Can't you see that? He says. But you'll never be able to see that as long as you cling to your proverb. As long as you deny your own personal responsibility before God. You you can't blame your parents or your culture or your genes. You can't complain that you don't get what you deserve. You've got to face the truth about yourself. And you see, it's then and then only that the gospel message begins to make sense. It, 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 it operates within a moral context. We've sung about God's grace here this morning. We've, we've read about it. We've talked about God's grace. How do you get God's grace? It comes through the truth. The truth of who God is. The truth of who we are in, in His sight. That we have failed Him. We're guilty. And it's not only seeing that truth, it's agreeing with that truth. And seeing that God's truth is good and right. And in the light of that truth, you come to Him, you seek His mercy, and you receive grace. Grace comes through truth. And you see, without the acceptance of moral responsibility, there can be no forgiveness. And without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. But truth leads us into the forgiveness of God. Face the moral truth. Take responsibility for your sin. Open, uh, just own it. Own it. It means saying, yes, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And again, this is how it operates in our human experience as well. I opened the Washington Post this morning. Front page, above the fold. Story about Vienna Presbyterian Church. I know the pastor there is a good man. A story about uh, sexual abuse of some teenagers involving in one of their associate pastors. And the story was about how this church was now seeing the consequences of what happened and is now facing up to it, acknowledging the truth and seeking repentance. Saying they're sorry. It's only then you see that you can enter into this sphere of grace and forgiveness. And be reconciled. Verse 32. The Lord says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. So repent and live. Now, if you've been following this series from Ezekiel, that verse may take you by surprise. After all, the denunciations of Israel's sin and the proclamations of the outpouring of the wrath of God, you might get the impression that God does delight in the death of the wicked. But He doesn't. Now, death will come for some. God must and He will judge evil. He will punish the wicked. The moral integrity of the universe requires it. His own nature demands it. But mysteriously, He does not delight in it. Heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents. You know, I find it telling that it's the Lord Himself who sends Ezekiel to Israel as a watchman. He's sent there to warn the people that He, the Lord, is coming against them. Now, what sort of enemy does that? Provides His own watchman. He's almost schizophrenic, isn't he? He's an enemy who wants to be resisted. He's an invader who wants to be turned away. 
That's because our God is a God of holy love. He is, hates and loves sinners at the same time. He's judging and showing mercy. In a sense, bending over backward to help these very people avoid His wrath. And not just bending over backward. No. Ultimately, He's a God who comes down Himself among us and bears a cross, taking our death upon Himself so that the righteousness and justice of this moral universe may be satisfied even as He forgives repentant sinners like you and me. Repent and live, He says. Acknowledge the truth. And enter into the life I now offer you. Life in my presence now and forever. Repent and live. Let's pray. As I invite our servers to come forward as we prepare to come to the communion table. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Lord, you offer us your grace. You demonstrate your love. You set before us the truth of who you are and who we are. Why will we die? Oh Lord, may we repent, turn to you, and live. We thank you for your love and grace. It comes to us in Christ. Amen. Amen.